They could smell South Georgia long before it appeared on the horizon. The potent and unmistakably human cocktail carried to them across miles of ocean by strong southwesterly headwinds was both repulsive and welcoming. There were gusts of complex chemicals and solvents, the smoke of wood fires and smog of crude fuels, a stench of sewage and death, disgusting smells that could only mean one thing. Emily put her arm around her daughter's shoulder, exhausted, filthy and cramped as they were after weeks with no sight of land, smelling a distant city felt like coming home. It wasn't home, and it wasn't really a city either. It was Patience Camp, a shanty settlement that huddled along the shoreline and around the perimeters of the militarized zones of an island whose bare mountains they later watched drawing closer above the slight swell. This was South Georgia, the gateway to the Southern Ocean and last port of call for Atlantic routes to Antarctica, both official and unofficial. At one point the winds carried with them a smell of roasting meat, and Emily had felt delirious with hunger. She could practically see the crisp fat turning golden in the heat, and in her mind's eye she watched hot fat dripping to sizzle and smoke on the rocks around the fire. She could almost feel the weight and texture of the juicy flesh in her mouth. If she could have reached across the miles of water and grabbed a hunk of whatever that was, she would have eaten it, cooked or not. After weeks of nothing but flatbread, rock-hard and smoky-tasting when it was baked slowly overnight on the meagre heat of a few covered embers, tough and blackened when the fire was good, the smell of meat cooking was like a sweet torture. It made everyone long for land, comfort and rest, for reunions with loved ones and families and spouses, for safety and sleep, for the resumption of normal life and everything else real or imagined that had become wrapped up with their desire to risk everything in this expensive and dangerous dash to the south. They had only had meat a few times on this journey, devouring whatever browning could bait and catch. A couple of times they had shared the rancid, oily flesh of seabirds that had been too sick or stupid to escape. Once they found a turtle, entangled in old fishing nets, which Browning had cut free only to throw it still alive onto the brazier, where upside down it paddled the air in reptilian slow motion, mutely opening and closing its mouth and turning its head this way and that until Browning, cursing, had cut its throat with the big knife he wore in his belt and turned it over in the fire. Damn thing shouldn't have looked at me like that. It stank like nothing you could imagine, but they had all eaten the disgusting fatty meat just the same. These past few days they had had no food at all, and only the smallest drop of water. Dawn brought them close enough to see the foreshore through the chaos of shipping that had been gradually building up around them. Junks, tankers and tugs, Cargo ships and barges all dodged each other in a dance of impossibly intricate navigations. As they nudged and nosed their way through, Browning stood in the bow, barking orders back. He wasn't a big man, but he was strong like a sailor. He was a cape pigeon. Emily could tell by his accent with its flattened vowels and the way that he rolled the letter R. People did what Browning said. 
As they got closer, he handed out oars to a few of the other men on the boat. They could barely lift them, but somehow he coaxed and organised them into helping steer. Tiny dinghies darted between the tankers and cargo ships, their occupants hawking everything from pornography to bananas, books, engine spares, and different kinds of weaponry or ammunition. The very real dangers of collision were outweighed by the safety in numbers that rendered pirate attack less likely the closer to port they came. They had been terrified to hear stories of deliberate capsizings and plunderings, of thugs not even deserving of the name of pirates who would scuttle boats leaving crew and passengers alike to drown. Despite these dangers, thousands of people still set off every day in boats of all sizes to make the journey south. It was a risk worth taking. It seemed as if nothing could be worse than what they had escaped in the north. Browning told them of pirates who would gamble with survivors' possessions and whose ruthlessness gave them a complete disregard for the lives of others. He spoke of bodies that were washed up on South Georgia with such appalling injuries that they could only have been man-made. He told them that this was the work of a terrorist organisation that called itself Black November and which preyed upon illegals, recruiting through fear and killing anyone who resisted. These were vicious men and impossible to bribe because if you had enough money to do that, then you had even more to steal. Browning said that not just some, but most of the illegal boats setting sail for Antarctica disappeared at the hands of either groups like Black November or the authorities. Only those who were very lucky or who had the backing of a big man were left alone. Luckily for M and Jenny, Browning worked for such a man. Captain Smiler was a very big man in more ways than one. Otherwise, and here Browning would stop talking and simply shake his head, as if unwilling to speak of the depravities he had seen. That Black November crew, he would say in a whisper, as if simply speaking their name aloud might invoke their arrival. Even as they had sailed, they had passed some empty boats that were simply drifting. They had seen clothes, a cardigan, floating in the water. For now, thank God, that risk was passed, at least until the next leg of the journey. Here, in the waters around South Georgia, the Coast Guard was the greater worry. There, heavily armed, high-speed launches continually patrolled the natural harbours formed by the fjords of Cumberland Bay and King Edward's Cove and the pontoons that had accreted along the coast west of Thatcher Point, and which formed Patience Camp's interface with the rest of the world. At one point, Emily turned and almost jumped out of her skin when she caught the eye of a policeman in just such a launch. Her heart was beating fast enough to escape from her chest, but he looked right through her, as if their boat was invisible. Browning had boasted incessantly about his power in this place. No one knows Antarctica like me, he would say. He conjured up vast parallel economies where payments were like keys that could open up all kinds of doors, where exchange rates and investments were measured in entry papers and visas, where bribes were as dependable as savings that could be cashed in kind. This was not idle boasting. They watched as other boats just like theirs were boarded. They glided past in silence as fellow irregulars just like them were led off, dead-eyed, 
on bitter final journeys to the notorious immigration tribunals who doled out deportation orders as fast as they could print them. Tickets to hell that randomly dispatched people north to the horrors of Buenos Aires or the Cape. Emily knew they couldn't go back. They'd given Browning everything they had to make this journey. If they went back, they would be lost. As they slipped through the gaps in the waterborne traffic, they could see a crowded shantytown of irregular, stilted and brightly coloured patchwork shacks that clustered along the filthy litter-strewn waterline and stretched back higgledy-piggledy towards the once ice-carved rock of the mountains behind. Just as people who live in forests respond to those particular environmental constraints and build their houses of wood, and those who live on riverbanks with clay, so it was here that people built with whatever was most freely available. This was architecture as a compromise solution, trading off the need for shelter with the costs of building in the first place against what's available. In this case, the rubbish that got washed up or entangled along the shore, with the resulting shanties, sheds, shacks and water can igloos, each representing the most economical solution. Huts were built of styrofoam panels, wire, and nautical detritus. Here were modified shipping containers, grain hoppers and industrial debris of unknowable function. There were hovels made from ladders, trucks and the hulls of boats, or from aeroplane wings and tarpaulins sewn together with knotted plastic carrier bags. Other dwellings looked like mud huts. Squat and rounded, they were built with plastic soda bottles and a kind of pebbled mortar, strengthened with old knotted trawler nets that poked through here and there. Many thousands more lived on the rusting hulls that had been strung out in great pontoons to create the unofficial harbours of Patience Camp. The whole place had a kind of washed-up, high-watermark appearance which reminded Emily of the layer of plastic bags, bottles, marine detritus and carrion that might be deposited to create a tangled and semi-organic contour high up a beach or riverbank by the worst storm of winter. So This Is Patience Camp was about all Emily could manage. She said it as brightly as she could and with half a laugh, hoping it didn't sound too scornful. Hmm? The famous patient's camp. The sound of her mother's voice stirred Jenny as if from sleep. Looking around, she was shocked, but took the bait. Patient's camp? Jenny hadn't laughed in ages. Rubbish camp, more like. Dump camp. Hey, damp camp, said Browning, not missing a beat. Jenny let go of Emily's waist. Tramp camp. 